Welcome to the Law Firm Growth Podcast, where we share the latest tips, tactics, and strategies for scaling your practice from the top experts in the world of growing law firms. Are you ready to take your practice to the next level? Let's get started. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jan Roos, and I am here with a very exciting guest. I'm really excited to get today's guest on the show because he's not somebody who's running the typical legal marketing playbook either. And I think as we get into this discussion, it's going to be very obvious why he has one of the most fascinating backgrounds of anyone I've met in the industry. Somebody I consider a friend, but welcome to the podcast. We've got Jerry Jawal of Legal Business Systems on today. Thanks for coming on, Jerry. Thank you so much. Uh, I don't know how to talk about a little intro, but I really, really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Jan. All right. So Jerry, I'm really stoked to get into this. Yeah, kind of for for everyone listening, where we're going to be going, uh, Jerry is one of the true creators in the space. And it's, you know, tough to see that in a place where a lot of people are just kind of copying each other's playbooks. But I want to get into some of the stuff that he's been doing lately, which is awesome. But before we get into that, let's kind of talk into the, uh, the bigger story. So how'd you get into legal? I mean, let's talk a little bit more about your business history in general, because it's, it's super, super interesting. But yeah, let's just kind of start with how you ended up getting here. Well, um, as you probably have guessed by now, um, I'm not American. <laughs> so um, that was a surprise to begin with. I started my entrepreneurial journey after my dad had a head and collision as a locksmith in the UK. And I took that as my first and only signal to exit the business consulting world. I used to work at Ernst & Young which many people know as an accounting firm in the business consultancy division, I was out of there like a flash. <laughs> so um, 24 years old, um, joined a locksmith company run by, by my father. The company was me and him and a van. And I had these big ideas of how I was going to franchise the company and make it global and all those kind of things that was uh, met by a very angry ethnic guy that we'll call dad, <laughs> who was very upset, went against all his like traditional ethnic goals of making his son a doctor or accountant or an engineer. And suddenly was sitting next to him in the family van trying to make a living. Five years later, we were one of the largest locksmithing companies in the country with 120 employees all over the country from Scotland all the way down to Plymouth. And uh, it was uh, not an easy ride by any means, but it was definitely a fast one. And that's where I started my marketing journey, um, learning how to split test ads on a 365 day life cycle using the yellow pages. So we really, really had to know what we were doing. And in those days, my version of split testing for anybody that's doing split testing today, you have it easy, guys. I was running three to five ads, different ads within each section of the yellow pages with an average of four to six telephone numbers per ad. So we had 30 to 60 yellow pages books in the UK. And we were running an average of four to five ads in each book with four to five telephone numbers for each ad. So we had a fair few phone numbers. So <laughs> that's how 
it all started. Fast forward, I ended up having family issues and essentially ended up in a divorce where I needed to, I could no longer be in one fixed location. So I had to use my skills and see where I could apply them. And that took me on a journey around the world of self-discovery, may I say in (laughs) polite words. To be honest, I was in the shit. But really, for for your listeners who may be like the more flowery language, I was finding myself, shall we say. (laughs) But um, it wasn't long until I uh, went from spending $5 to $10 on rent after losing everything to then finding somebody who is willing to pay me $10,000 for my, for my consultancy. And that's when the whole online world really, really opened up for me. So I'd been a business owner and doing the online marketing because from Yellow Pages, we went from there to Google Ads. From there, we were very, very quickly spending our way up the ladder. And that's how we ended up where we were. That all fell short, uh, unfortunately, after I had a stroke at 29 years old. And essentially, um, I could no longer run that really high-paced or fast-paced locksmithing firm, which was a 24-hour operation, uh, which then obviously led, led to other family things that happened in my life, which led to me essentially figuring my way out. And I was kind of like bumming about, really. I was doing one consultancy gig to another, not really, not really like settling with a niche until I want to say kind of 2020, just uh, around about the COVID period where I realized I couldn't go from one thing to another and bumped into my first lawyer client. And from there, it was really, really fast paced. We went from spending... $5,000 a month to $20,000 a month. And then he told a few friends and we took on those clients. And what I was doing in those days was primarily paper lead for personal injury lawyers. And as you know, Jan, uh, personal injury lawyers are not shy of spending when they find something that works. So that business very rapidly grew. And uh, I think that's about the time that we met. But didn't quite sit with me. So yes, we ran a seven-figure business. Yes, we ran huge, huge advertising budgets. But what I didn't like about the personal injury world was that as soon as you didn't get a result, there was no, it was not forgiving at all. You didn't really have true relationships with your clients. And unfortunately, that meant it was very transactional. And anyone in the PI world will tell you that buying leads is very transactional. I think you know as well as I do in the, in the legal world, buying leads is very transactional. So yeah, we, we stepped away from that and transitioned more into what we're doing now. That's a little kind of in- intro what, uh, what leads us here. Yeah, Jerry, I gotta say, I really wish I would asked you this question in our personal life sooner because I didn't know a couple of the big highlights of that story. That's insane. And also just kind of point this out for the listeners too. just, you know, the kind of skills that you need to scale a locksmith company from essentially two to 120 employees in five years on Yellow Pages is not really too, it's fewer steps away than what you need to do similar to something in the legal space, just because, you know, we're talking about local marketing at the end of the day. It seems like you probably had a lot more time you had to spend with a 
with a calculator back in the 120 different ad state and reconciling those things too. But, um, you know, fundamentally, that is a lot of the times, you know, any legal industry you can kind of, any legal niche that you can potentially think of, that's an ultimately come down to local business. So that's fascinating. Yeah. But before we kind of transition into the stuff that, that you're, you're working with today, Given your experience in the personal injury space, uh, you know, it's it's interesting because it seems like the the paper lead thing has been going on for a while. I don't think there's ever going to be a time that it's stopping. But what's your experience been in terms of like, what do you think is wrong with that model outside of the, the relationships with vendors? Like, what do you think a law firm risks by making that something that they're dependent on? That is a really good question. And I think I've spent many an hour thinking about this when it comes to personal injury law. And unlike many other aspects of law or the legal space, personal injury law is very reactive. You cannot plan for it. You don't know when it's going to happen. Some people don't even know what they're entitled to and just go along with what insurance companies have told them. Not only that, but unfortunately for the personal injury lawyer, they are almost preceded by this whole history um, of what's termed as the ambulance chaser, right? Um, so there's like stereotypes that they've had to deal with. And not only that, but the sheer nature of being a personal injury lawyer, it's aggressive to start off with. You are suing the insurance company on behalf of your client. So when you say how important is paper lead, I think it's extremely important as part of the industry because of the nature of the beast. Meaning, if you didn't pay per lead per se, you're going to pay per lead anyway. And what I mean by that is you could go and pay $220 in Florida for a lead or $500 for a lead in California, but equally so, you could go and spend $50,000 and acquire 1,000 leads in a month, and it's still paying per lead. It's just who's managing the lead, what stage are you at in your business, and how much certainty do you have with the fact that advertising is your route to growth? And I think that that just brings me on to a very pertinent point, actually, because when once belief and certainty collide, you make money. And that is regardless of whatever you are selling. So how does that work with a paper lead model or even any legal space marketing model? Well, there are, as you know, certain people who believe that billboard marketing works. And who am I to argue? Because at the end of the day, they've been doing it for the last 10 years and they still do it. And they you try and buy that billboard off them for the next five years, it's probably already prepaid for. So who's to argue that paper lead doesn't work? Advertising works in general. I think the lawyers themselves and the business owners themselves go through this process of this certainty meets belief graph. And that's what people don't see. It's themselves changing. It's the business owner's certainty belief graph that changes through the progress of them being a business owner. So you're always paying per lead. It's just how much do you believe that paying per lead is going to get you to where you need to go? Go and ask those guys with the yellow sign in Florida. 
and see how much he believed when he was certain about putting his first ads out. And by the way, his first ads out were in the yellow pages. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I mean, it absolutely does. And actually, so it's, I want to double click on this too, because this seems like a really, really interesting concept that you, you put some thought into. Stepping out to definitions, how would you differentiate between certainty and belief? Because I think this is a really interesting concept. Okay, so I believe that, well, let's take my example, right? My mum believed that I should be a lawyer when I was a young child, but I was not certain that I could be a lawyer. I always was an average student. Now, this is kind of a, a bit of a lame example, but still in the form of a child still makes sense. As a father, I know now from my own experience that had my mother been able to get my level of certainty to meet, or so, to meet her belief, the chances are I probably would have become a lawyer. And it's the same thing with anything. If you can be certain about things that haven't even happened. And you can believe those things. Now, what's the difference? Belief. Well, belief is when something has not happened, and you hope that it might happen. And certainty is when you really, really are certain that it's going to happen no matter what. So I don't know even if that actually answers the question. But um, I think it's it's definitely, yeah, it's, it's definitely enough to start because I think like falling from there, there's absolutely different behaviors that start falling into place once your certainty matches your belief, right? Yeah. And uh, like, I'm sorry that I can't articulate it. I should have been more prepared for the question. But honestly, it's something that I've almost turned into a mantra. Like I can be certain about something that could happen, but if I don't believe it, then it won't happen. And if I can believe that something will happen, then I have to be certain that it will happen. And it's almost like the collision of those two things that causes things to happen. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting, too, because, you know, I always try to have like multiple levels of this because there's there's similar things that we talk about often on the podcast about just, you know, a lot of stuff that mindset for sales, for example, is just like an example that comes up a lot. So I think there's ways to look at this. There's, you know, sometimes there's like kind of a philosophical level. There's some people want to take it to a metaphysical level, but there's also a psychological level, which is, you know, you're going to pay attention to different things and you're going to interpret neutral feedback, positively or negatively, depending on what your mind is made up to look for. And I'll say this too, like your example, the billboard guy is fantastic. Because it's like, look, there's people in our space that that will drag billboards through the mud all the time. Again, you're not going to see <laughs> like it's it's almost a point of, of a joke in common society about how many friggin lawyer billboards are. So yeah. it's working. It might not be working for you. Or again, it could work for you. Maybe if the belief is there, right? But I think it's really interesting too, and and I'll, I'll kind of say this from the experience that and again, it's like it's it's funny. Uh, probably my most of experience in the the PI space was mostly on the AdWords side of things, way back in the day. We're talking like probably 2015 through like 2018. But we were also compared very very heavily to a lot of these paper lead things. But it was kind of interesting because I want to ask you about this because this is this is a phenomenon that was very very big in the agency space back when we met back in 2020. I think it's going to actually get worse because a lot of the stuff that people like Alex Formosi are putting out. But 
I feel like a lot of the ways that people are choosing to set up vendor relationships or propose as the vendor to set up these relationships is bad. Like the, hey, try uh, 20 cases sign or your thing back. Oh, try out just five leads or this one's for free. Because what kind of certainty can you really ascribe to that if, if, it's, if there's no cost to bailing out? It's like kind of a prove itself thing, but the other side of the coin is not really going to get met as far as the actions that take place to, to get these leads to actually close. Yeah. I mean, let's not even mention the FTC with that because <laughs> that's that's whole different can of worms. And if you're a marketer throwing out guarantees or watching this, then uh, maybe you should uh, change those ways because uh, that's something that we sh- should all be looking out for. But I think, first of all, it comes down to entrepreneur maturity. I think if you are any kind of lawyer who's been in business for a while and you see that kind of promise, you're going to probably think in your gut that that doesn't sound, it it sounds too good to be true. And realistically speaking, if you are going to get five leads or five cases or your money back, then that's not really growing a business anyway, because all you're doing is taking that chance and like playing the lottery. So I see it like roulette. I think if you're going to run a business in the law, in the law, legal space, then you've got to know that you're in to be able to spend X, Y, Z on advertising or not advertise at all. Because otherwise, you're not, there, there is a price to entry. And that's what I've realized. Like someone buying 20 leads in PI might get the market to a sale and the, the lawyer a hope of getting a case. But the chances are it's going to be slim to none if they haven't got all the other pieces in place. So what I mean by that, the CRM, the intake person, ensuring that essentially they have a checklist of things that the lawyer actually wants from a case. All these other things need to be in place. And it's very, very difficult to promise that as a marketer. But more so, I think the onus lies on the lawyer to understand that that's what they need. And unfortunately, that's what marketers today are preying on lawyers for because lawyers don't necessarily know that straight out of law school. And what, I, what I'm talking about is I have clients who are lawyers who have been in business for 10 years plus. If you offered them any guarantee, they would laugh in your face because they know that you have no control over it. So that's what I mean by the maturity of the law firm owner, because if he has been in business for maybe a year, he might believe that you could guarantee X, Y, Z. But any mature person also knows that Sally's in my office. It's my CRM. It's my staff that asks the questions. It's my follow-up that gets me the actual case. And if I'm training my staff to be more polite, more thorough and give that client the the service that they need. That's what gets the client. So yeah, I personally would say beware of marketers offering all these false guarantees, because even if they could, there's no guarantee that your business is set up to receive everything that they're going to throw at you. And just to add to that, Jan, how many of your clients would be able to accept a quadruple in the amount of cases overnight without adjusting other parts of their business. And that's the 
thing that I think we've got to be really, really like pertinent about and bring light to that. That even if I got you four times the cases, can you actually intake them? Can you finance them? Can you run them on contingency if it's PI or if it's estate planning? Have you got the, you know, the resources to pump that work out and still wait for the cash flow to come in? Yeah, that's fantastic. I also just want to say, like, I like how you describe the concept as maturity because I've never thought of it that way, but it's genuinely a one-way street when you look at the career of any business owners. You start, and again, not for nothing, people do have success with some of these, you know, smaller outfits or or working with somebody cheap because that's what you can afford when, when the time comes. But once you get those wins, it's generally you start to realize how much of that really was on you at, at the time. And that's generally not a direction that people are going to go backwards from, which is really, which is really interesting. But I think this is a fantastic segue too into just, you know, this holistic approach. So kind of given, and, and we didn't talk about the next part of the story, but let's kind of transition to kind of stuff you've been working on lately. So like, you know, let's talk about, you know, after the kind of splitting with the, the PI paper lead type stuff, what was the next move for you? The next move was really like, I don't know how much of your audience understands about EOS systems and operations and systems. And many of these successful law firms, I noticed, started transitioning into systemizing other parts of their business. So when I'm talking about lead generation, well, they realized, well, once again, this whole word of maturity is not meant to insult anybody. It's just that when you go and meet someone that's been taking leads for 10 years versus one person who's been taking leads for a year, the 10-year-old veteran knows that he's got to optimize other parts of his business, other parts of his whole PNL. And we started looking at that. So I literally just got chased down by a client or, or a prospect at that time, where it was a law firm owner who wanted systems built out for his probate firm. Um, and we went out and built this whole automation system that started off with the intake forms. And we created essentially a golden briefcase of 30 documents that essentially automated all beneficiaries, all documents, and whether it was contested or uncontested. Basically, why we called it a golden briefcase was because we automated the production of a pre-filled document for every single document that a probate lawyer would need to represent his client. So essentially, we started widening our scope and solving problems wherever they came up. If it was marketing, it would be marketing-led. If it was holistically looking at all the marketing, not just digital, but radio, TV, depending on the size of the firm, we would look at that. We would also look at optimization strategies in terms of structure. Are you going to run your law firm in a pod system? Or are you going to run it in a pattern form of system? And different law firms have different operating ways depending on what their profit model looks like. So we started really, really going much, much deeper and understanding where the holes were. And because of the experience that I had had by this time in multiple industries, it was much easier for me to look at it as a non-lawyer and just look at it as almost like a process diagram. So that's what we started doing. 
And the results that we started getting was that lawyer with the probate went from doing, I think he was doing five cases a month to doing 20 cases a week or something like that and went from something like $20,000 to $300,000 in signed retainers within a matter of weeks, if not a few months. So it was really, really fast and really, really rapid. Well, it's interesting too, because it's it's kind of to to fold this back into what we were talking about earlier, you realistically couldn't get that kind of a result by focusing on just one side of things. And I think that's part of what's really, really interesting about having a situation where you can bring parts on both sides of the coin, so to speak, to bear. Because yeah, it's like, you know, you want to drop $300,000 worth of business on somebody's desk that doesn't have the fruit to take it. That's going to be a person who's going to probably get disbarred within, <laughs> within too long, yeah, right? Exactly. And, and the thing is, like, it's very easy for me to say, oh, it was automation. Of course it wasn't. We had offshore teams doing processing. We had researchers offshore. We were hiring paralegals offshore. There was a whole recruitment training process of that happening, and it was run on the backbone of systems. So yes, there's like, and to my previous point, if we just handed him 60 cases, well, he wouldn't have been able to take 60 cases the next month, but he did. Yeah. So that is like making sure exactly what you're saying. It's all well and good being able to take 60 cases, but can you take 60 cases every month, like clockwork for the next 12 months without breaking stuff? And that's where, once again, the certainty and belief. I might believe that you can get me 60 cases, but am I certain that I can deliver them? Now, as a risk, as a lawyer, that's on the, the bar association, that's on me keeping my license, that now many lawyers won't take that risk. So is it actually a risk on the marketing or is it a risk on the certainty that the lawyer has in himself that he can get the result that he's promised that's put on the set? And sometimes, as my mentor says, you could often be looking out of what you think is a window but is actually a mirror. Yeah, because I mean, if you're looking for a way to not make it work, because in the back of your mind, you're not worried about it, you're going to find out ways to kill those deals. And there's so many different ways that we've seen. It could be what you want to think of lead quality things. You can find, you can, you can create issues in the consultation room and drop it. You can not prioritize stuff within your staff. There's so many ways to get things to live. But I mean, really kind of a fantastic result with that particular one. I want to kind of get into some different ones. But I mean, it's interesting because we were talking about this a little bit on the pre-chat. It's almost been a complete inversion of the model that you were doing before, where you were doing one very narrow thing for a lot of different firms, but you've kind of decided to go deep as opposed to wide with, with this current iteration of the business. Can you tell me more about that? I always believe in using leverage and um, I'm not 22 years old. And what I realized is that the barriers for marketing and like what I call transactional marketing were very low. You could almost fake it till you made it. And there was no real leverage there at that level for me. And to be completely frank, I don't think that my personal skills are as somebody as a media buyer. I think considering I'm in my 40s, I've been doing this 20 years, 
across continents, across different various different industries, I just felt like if I was going to leverage something, what could I bring to the to the table? And then it was my mentor that said, no, it's not the table, it's the board table. And that totally changed my perspective. I stopped thinking of myself as just a marketer, but I started thinking of myself as a board member. And as soon as I made that mental shift, I started calling myself the chief fractional marketing director. And that mental shift meant that I was no longer just looking at PPC or just local business or just the radio advertising. I was looking at how much we were spending accordance to our complete PL, what percentage of profit were we reinvesting into the marketing? What marketing was that leading into the number of phone calls? What cost per phone call were we getting? And what was the actual acquisition cost that we were getting on the end of that? And then out of that acquisition cost, what was the touch point after that, right? So it didn't just stop at the point of sale. We had to go further and see what was the response? How long did it take us to complete stage one, stage two? What was the cost of processing that case? And how do you apply that to a case? So I started going deeper because I could see those things on behalf of the, the owner. And the only way that came about is because I started asking questions, questions that other marketers were not asking. And that uncovered holes for my clients. And they then just came back to me and said, well, you've just uncovered a hole. How do we fix it? And in, unbeknown to me, when I was trying to fix scaling a locksmith company to 120 employees, guess what I was doing? Creating an internal phone call center inside my business that was fielding calls from inbound leads, calculating the cost per call, understanding how much it would cost us to get there, and then how much we, what we would sell on the back end to actually make a profit. So when you started comparing that to the legal world, there were so many similarities that it was almost like doing it again. Then I did it for an accountant firm. Then I did it for a, a doctor. And then I did it for another doctor. And then I did it for a very specialist photographer. And we just went and did $141,000 on a weekend for this photographer last weekend, which is like unheard of for local businesses. So as you pointed out earlier, I think I just understand the business of local business and holistically how the marketing section is such a key catalyst in shoving money into different parts of your business that need it that most people don't even think about. It's super interesting because it's like, it's, it's a huge lever, but it's not the only lever. And it's not a lever that's so big that it makes the other things unimportant. You know, it's, it's super interesting because I see these things too. Honestly, you, you make some really awesome Facebook posts, Jerry. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I hear these awesome case studies uh, from all the stuff that you're doing. And I think it's fantastic because again, it's like, you're not going out there. This isn't, you know, you're not, uh, you know, speaking on stage and doing the guru thing. You're not publishing books. You're just quietly uh, <laughs> doing your thing and crushing it for clients, which is such a beautiful thing to see. 
And as far as like anything else from like the legal perspective, because I think you had a couple other really awesome, I'm not sure what you're comfortable with sharing, but like any other like, you know, big ones that you can think of from the legal space, uh, in addition to that probably one we were talking about earlier. Let me tell you this one. All right. And um, this might make some of your listeners smile, right? Because this is, the, uh, I want to tell you about this guy called Frank. And uh, he's not called Frank, but we're, we're just going to call him Frank for argument's sake. And uh, Frank is the NTPI lawyer, right? So if you think of the typical Californian PI lawyer who spends a million dollars a month, he knows he's getting 30 grand for every case or whatever it might be, minimum. His appetite is very, very, you know, he, he will spend as much as he can. But Frank just doesn't want any part of that whatsoever. Frank does not want the no win, no fee. He's a personal injury lawyer that hates the, the ads that go about telling people about no win, no fee. He is the content marketer and, uh, of his town because he believed that if he was just around, then he would get picked up. And that's exactly what the billboard guys were doing in 1980 and what the Yellow Pages guys done after them and what the content marketers of today are doing so, so well. So what we realized with him is when we took the concept of influence marketing and added ads to it, what you had was the concept of organic educational content marketing but locally, so what this guy would do is he would go into a restaurant, have lunch, and not talk about law at all, but just promote his neighbor. And then he'd go into another place and have a donut and promote that. And then he'd go and literally stop at a car accident at the most obvious point in his city as he deals with that kind of work and literally say, well, I'm not going to be one of those other lawyers that does all these fake ads. This just happened right now. So what he's doing, he's doing the classic document, not sell. So I love this guy because he uses ads, but he uses them in the non-conventional way to amplify his voice, which is actually what ads should be doing. I think the days of personal injury ads working will never be gone. But I think the days of personal injury ads and lawyer ads being merged with personal brands is going to be the future. I think the consumer is so tired of seeing those same, same ads over and over again. They want to know, like, and trust their lawyer, whether it's a divorce lawyer, or whether it's a probate lawyer, or whether it's a personal injury lawyer, they want to know that they care. And no win, no fee, no longer cuts it, in my opinion. Not if it's built for longevity anyway. Well, I'll say this too, like, you know, to the devil's advocate position about this, like, even if it wasn't the future, you're not going to get in doing what people are succeeding with today, period. It's, you know, if it's not the option for a long time, it's the option that you got right now. But um, I think that's brilliant too. I've got to be completely honest. I've never admitted this on the podcast, but I've always been so terrified about working with clients on content stuff because I'm like, 
damn, like, you know, you got to create this custom for every single person. But, you know, that's, yeah. that's, it's finding the intersection of the, the tools that you have at your disposal. And it seems like, you know, the influence marketing was a really good one in the Venn diagram, or like, you know, the three frayed Venn diagram of stuff that fits his personality, the stuff that you could help him with, and the stuff that's actually working in the market. Yeah. And there's something to be said by that. Not everyone can do it. If you are the box standard lawyer that literally just wants to go out and do law, then somebody else is going to have to do your content marketing, or you're just going to have to buy leads. Now, the problem with just buying leads is you're not building a brand. And that's where I think the world of legal is going to change in the near future. Unfortunately, or fortunately, however you want to look at it. And uh, I know that this may be a little bit of a curveball, but lawyers are sitting in this fenced environment. If you're not a lawyer, you can't work with a lawyer in terms of equity. You can't own shares in a law firm. And because of that, it's almost given the legal space cushioning. Cushioning from who? Cushioning from VCs, cushioning from PEs, cushioning from Yan and Jerry, right? Because let's face it, Yan, if you were given a legal license right now, you'd be lethal, right, as a law firm, because at the end of the day, you're a fantastic marketer. So essentially, that has given the legal space some cushioning. Now, why is this important? Because in other spaces, if you just bought leads, you wouldn't have a business. So other businesses in the ecosystem on the high street literally have to build brands. You can't be a plumber without a reputation. You can't just buy leads off electrical faults, or you can't be a doctor that just advertises and then gets leads. You have to build up a brand. And I think the lawyers that are going to be focusing on making connections with their audience, connecting with them are the ones that are going to succeed. And yeah, I agree. Not everyone's going to do it. It's definitely not scalable as a business model for marketers, which is why I go deep. And I can't work necessarily with everybody. But I would prefer that because today I'll keep a client and maybe for five years, maybe for 10 years, but we'll build a company. And at the end of it, he will exit at a multiple more than one-to-one, which is what law firms are being sold at today. I don't know if you know that, but the factor on law firms are pretty much one-to-one. So that means if you're doing a million dollars a year, you're going to sell the business for a million. And you could have been working that business and growing it for the past 20 years. Well, whereas if you start a plumbing firm 20 years ago, and it's doing a million dollars today, it, you're going to sell it for 6 million at least, or at least 3 million. So going forward, that's what really forced me to look at this, these businesses as actual businesses of the future. Because as these false kind of fences come down as we're seeing in places like Arizona and other states where those fences are coming down, we are going to see the need for branded and uh, really reputation building kind of marketing campaigns. 
It's super interesting because I'm kind of seeing the the EY consultant coming out of this because I mean, that's the real business fundamentals. It's kind of funny. Uh, it, it's come up a little bit on, on some uh, some recent podcasts that you guys are going to hear by the time this episode's coming out. But yeah, I think that's it's a big thing on everyone's lips. And like, if you want to look at any of this stuff, too, because all of this, you know, to kind of have a, a baptism into the, the broader world of business is something that people are going to either have brought upon them or they're going to be able to undertake themselves. But one of my favorite terms ever, you know, when you talk about like the stuff that Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, RIP, uh, I've been talking about forever is stuff like moats. And a brand is a moat, you know, that's that's one of the, it's not the only way, but it's a great way for people to kind of ensure that they have something valuable at the end of the day. But um, Jerry, this has been an awesome conversation. I don't know if you're taking clients right now or what, but like for anyone who's who's kind of getting uh, you know, interested in this and wants to get into your world, like what's the best way to take a next step? The best way is to reach out literally on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. It's at Jerry Jerry Waller, um, and we'll leave some links uh, down below if you wouldn't mind. Um, but literally, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, you can reach me out, and I always answer my DMs. All right, fabulous. And well, yeah, we'll get those links in the show notes for you guys. But um, Jerry, it's been awesome having you on. I super appreciate you taking the time. And um, guys, I hope you've appreciated this. It's, you know, this isn't the standard uh, podcast track guest, but you know, the, the people who sometimes have the best ideas and best track records aren't going out to promoting themselves. So I hope this was fun for you guys. And um, Jerry, it's, it's been a pleasure. And for everybody else, we'll see you guys next Tuesday at 8 a.m. Eastern on the Law Firm Growth Podcast. Thank you. Thanks a lot for having me. Thank you for listening to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. For show notes, free resources, and more, head on over to casefuel.com slash podcast. Looking forward to catching up on the next episode.